You're listening to the Hot Podcast. Let faith, family, and pop culture collide like a bloody train wreck. Be decent to each other. In 1957, the bomb dropped. The last bastion of freedom became a place called Las Vegas, and Elvis was crowned king. Now, his only heir has died, and Vegas needs a new king. And one guitar-picking, sword-swinging wanderer is fighting for the throne. And one lone orphan is along for the ride. If you scratch my guitar, I'll kill you. Follow the yellow brick road, homie. Do you know who I am? No. You know, we don't get too many of you guys around here. A lot of king wannabes on their way to Vegas. You are in Soviet territory. No one goes through. The war is over, baby. It's been over for years. So all you commies, step aside. Neither armies nor bowlers. Nice tuxedo. Nice tuxedo to die. Nor death himself. Don't let the four eyes reach Vegas alive. We'll keep them from their quest. I gotta get a new gig. The six-string samurai, and he became a legend. Jeffrey Falcon, Justin McGuire, six-string samurai. Hey, everybody! We are back. Our podcast. This is Dino and Michelle, and we've got a special guest. I'm really excited about this. If you've listened to the podcast. For any amount of time, you know that there are several films that I hold near and dear to my heart. There's John Carpenter's The Thing. There's Jaws. There's several movies by Larry Blamire and Six String Samurai. And we have the director, creator of Six String Samurai, Lance Mungia, with us today. Lance, how you doing, buddy? Great, man. Thanks, Dino, for having me on the podcast. This is great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this, uh, this is fantastic. Yeah, I'll tell you, the first time I heard of Sixteen Samurai, I think it was a write-up in Fangoria, like uh-huh, back sure. in 98. Yeah, I remember that. And I'm like, yeah, wow, this you know, seems like a real weird film. And then I had a friend of mine that worked at like Suncoast Video. And he had picked up the DVD. And so, you know, had a chance to watch it. And I was just like 
blown away. You know, I was into independent films and small films. And just this film had everything that I loved. You know, we have a post-apocalyptic rockabilly, Buddy Holly, Wizard of Oz film. Yep, (laughs) that's pretty much it. (laughs) And man, where did that come from? (laughs) Well, you know, um, it was sort of like uh, an excuse for all of the reasons that I got into film to begin with, you know, where it, it just kind of became like a tone poem, uh, a, a love letter to um, all of the things that I loved as a kid, you know, growing up. And, and uh, you know, I, I loved the films of Akira Kurosawa and Sergio Leone. You know, I loved uh, sci-fi. I loved uh, rock and roll. I loved, um, you know, all that stuff. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of Hong Kong films, you know, like, uh, and I think that, um, when I met Jeffrey Falcon, who, who starred in the film, you know, he was a action choreographer slash action director from Hong Kong. And he also was um, a really brilliant artist. And, you know, we had teamed up together to write a script together, which was not six string samurai. It was another script called a fistful of dollars and a pocket full of change. Mm-hmm. which was a complete satire on the old spaghetti Westerns. And um, that didn't take off, but when he was getting ready to go back to Hong Kong, cause he was only actually visiting the States for, you know, a few months, I said, you know, Hey, my thesis is coming up at Loyola Marymount. Why don't we do a feature film together? Let's, let's put something together as a project and, and do it. And of course him being a martial artist, you know, we thought like, well, let's do something in martial arts. And we started this conversation back and forth over facts. Cause back then there was no internet. So it was just faxing back and forth from Hong Kong and talking about ideas. And frankly, I wasn't like that enthusiastic because I felt like we were talking about a lot of ideas that were, um, that had been done, you know, like just ideas that have been every, every Hong Kong movie idea has been done, you know, to death and, and, you know, these kind of like typical, uh, you know, kind of martial arts films. And I didn't want to just make another typical martial arts film that people had already seen starring, you know, Jeffrey Falcon. And, um, but I was determined to kind of do something with it because we were putting our time into it. And he, he had come back to the United States and we were talking about, you know, sort of very kind of generic kind of Kung Fu looking costumes and things like that. And I, I was really not into it. And uh, we were kind of having a frustrating conversation. And then one night really late, I decided to go have like coffee or something at some little diner in the middle of the night. So we took off and we, were t- we took a break and we we're sitting there, you know, just kind of talking and he Jeff looked at me and he says, how do you, how do you wear those glasses like that, man? I mean, those glasses are so thrashed. It's like you, you know, they're scratched and dirty and you've got tape in the middle. And, you know, I was in college at the time. I couldn't afford new glasses. So it's like, I had, you know, my old beat up kind of Ray-Ban, you know, glasses uh, very similar to the ones that he wore in the, in the film. And I, and I sometimes will play a trick on people. I'll say, Oh, you want to see through my glasses and I'll, I'll let them wear them. And my eyesight is, terrible so so uh you know you obviously you put the glasses on and you go whoa i can't see anything and he put the glasses on and and immediately i remarked hey you know it's kind of funny you look like buddy holly and and uh and and he says yeah yeah i guess i do and i said no you really look like buddy holly and and i said oh my gosh what if we what if we made buddy holly a martial arts superhero that would be great (laughs) you know and and uh, and and then it was like wildfire from that moment on for both of us we just we 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 started really talking a lot about 
uh, rock and roll and other influences that had nothing to do with martial arts. What it did was it broke us out of that, that uh, chain of being married to your typical martial arts genre. And, and uh, there were so many other things that, that I had loved growing up that I wanted to kind of talk about in film and, and especially as a sort of primarily visual storyteller at that time. So it, it allowed me to bring all of these other elements in. And then pretty soon I started thinking about Igmar Bergman's, you know, Seven Seal and, and about, like you said, Wizard of Oz and, and um, so many other sort of giants, you know, that, that I was standing on the back of in terms of like the, the kind of just filmmaking that I love, the style of the filmmaking. And, and that just really opened it up and, and it created a, a different conversation. And I find that sometimes creatively, you, you really do have to kind of just think outside the box in terms of what will work. And, uh, you know, Jeff had these amazing martial arts skills and, um, and, you know, he also didn't fit the mold of a martial artist. I mean, here's a guy who was not Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, he was not buff. He wasn't like a big guy. You know, he didn't have this kind of overwhelming presence. He actually had kind of a very subtle presence about himself. And uh, I thought it was just ideal that, that you could take this character who in a sense looks kind of nerdy, but make him like a total badass. And, and that's kind of where the idea came from. Uh, Yeah. And I, and I see uh, definitely some, uh, uh, Jabrowski uh, influence in there too, like El Topo. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, now that that really uh, came just as a, um, I knew that that he had shot out in Death Valley, and I knew that hardly anybody ever shot out in Death Valley, and um, I figured, well, if he had done it, we could probably do it too, and um. I had no idea how hard it would be to actually shoot in Death Valley. I mean, it wasn't actually very bad initially because we were shooting in the fall, but uh, we were shooting basically from, I don't know, September to December with no budget, you know, completely no budget in Death Valley. And uh, just with a kind of a revolving door crew of friends from film school and people who kind of just wanted to be involved with no budget. And we would sleep in tents and eat hot dogs and roast marshmallows. And it was kind of like this little mini vacation every weekend. You know, we would go out there and shoot with, from the back of a U-Haul truck, basically. Uh, and then my previous short film got into Sundance. Um, I had done a short film called Garden for Rio, and that got into the Sundance Film Festival. And then at that same time, we had been kicked out of Death Valley, and we sort of were very... Um, broke completely broke i mean jeff jeff had put i think um dollars and i took out twenty five thousand dollars in student loans to to basically just process the film stock at the time because it was all shot on 35 millimeter we got uh you know expired film stock from fuji and free cameras from panavision and uh, you know just all, all this kind of stuff that we could kind of cobble together but we were completely broke and then and then we wound up going back to go shoot in may again with a budget after we had raised some additional money to shoot and that was hell. And I was just, I mean, it was so hot. I mean, it gets so hot by May in Death Valley. It was like late May when we started, uh, you know, shooting. And um, it was really, really hot. And then I, then I realized why uh, Jordowski had done uh, that film and it was such an accomplishment and why nobody ever goes back and shoots in Death Valley. <laughs> That's why, because it's really difficult. <laughs> right. Now, 
like I said, you, you know, you have Buddy Holly as your main, uh, your protagonist, um, which was a great draw for me. I, I was in a, back in the 90s, from about 92 to 99, I was in a, a blues rock and roll band uh, that did, I mean, we were a bar band that did a lot of 50s covers. And I actually learned how to play bass while watching the Buddy Holly story. Oh, wow. I kind of listened and, you know, figured I had the walking bass lines and all that. So that spoke to my heart. Um, but music playing a huge thing. The soundtrack between Brian Tyler and the Red Elvises is like magical in this movie. How did, how did you get, how'd you pull that together? Well, you know, I, I actually just recently reconnected with both Brian and the Red Elvises um, because the film is being re-released. We should probably mention that. You know, the yeah, film, oh yeah. film is, is uh, coming out in a uh, 4K UHD disc. Uh, it's a three-disc set, which includes the uh, 4K disc and a 1080p Blu-ray and then um, a making-of documentary as well. So um, I'm, I'm co-directing the making-of documentary, and I, I went back and I interviewed several of the people and um with brian in terms of brian tyler that was actually his first released film and brian tyler if you don't know you know he, he's gone on and done a ton of stuff i mean he's done several marvel movies from iron man to avengers mm -hmm. uh, you know he's really an a-list composer now in hollywood and um and he was just awesome in terms of being able to tie it all together but he actually came in last uh, he, he came in after the Red Elvises, you know, the, the Red Elvises shortly after we had kind of had this revelation of a Buddy Holly superhero, we, um, I encountered the Red Elvises for the first time. And, and basically the, the, the short story of that is that I was on a blind date and I was looking in the LA weekly for something to do on this blind date. And I came upon Rusty Surf Bar on the pier in Santa Monica. And there was a band playing that night called the Red Elvises and said, you know, mixture of Russian folk rock and rock and roll. And, and, uh, and I thought, wow, this is interesting. Uh, you know, this, this would be cool. We'll go listen to some music. So I, I picked up my date and we went to the, the pier. And as I was walking up the pier, I could hear this version of Habana Gila uh, which I had never heard before. It was completely a rock and roll version of Habana Gila. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And, and then I, I finally got up to the window and I looked inside and here's these four guys with these giant black pompadours uh, and uh, dressed all in red. And this guy has a giant bass balalaika and they're, and they're playing this music. And um, I guess in the audience, there were several friends of theirs from a Russian acrobat troupe. So literally there's people dancing in the audience doing these just incredible flips and, you know, the Russian kind of kick dancing and all these like kind of Russian spins and all this stuff from Russian dance. And, and I just thought this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Number one. And number two, the music is amazing. And, and number three, it's perfect for, this kind of a post-apocalyptic Buddy Holly thing when we talk about the 1950s and we talk about the Red Scare and, and you know, communism and all of these sort of uh, kind of stereotypes of the 1950s and how everybody was scared of Russia. How awesome is that if we can then take our, our Buddy Holly superhero and put him in this world 
where where we're using you know rock and roll that is influenced by Russian music. You know, I thought that was genius to myself, and 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 I was so excited about it that I, I basically listened intently to their entire set and ignored my date. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> needless to be said, we never went out on a second date. I made her wait until like the very 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 end of the show when everybody had left, and and uh, and then and then I walked up to the Red Elvises and I and I said, you know, um, look, I'm just a student and I'm making a short, a, a film and I hope it'll become a feature film. And, and uh, can I use some of your music? And, and literally Igor and, and Oleg from the uh, Red Elvis has literally said, Oh, you know, calm down here, take this, you, you take this, you do whatever you want with it. You know? And, wow. and so that soundtrack that, that uh, album, actually, I think they gave me two albums um, and that became my anthem for the next probably three or four months. I just listened to that stuff constantly because now I knew I had, you know, music that I could use in the film. And I would literally write scenes based around their music, you know, and, and it, it literally uh, like uh, my favorite is probably my love is killing me, which is, I know mm -hmm. still one of their songs they still play. And, and uh, I thought to myself, how great is it? We'll write a scene around, um, a guy who has been so beaten up and, you know, so, so many times because of his, his, uh, um, you know, warrior skills that, uh, you know, his, his love of fighting, his love of this martial art is killing him literally. Like, you know, it's just, he's so beat up and it, it didn't, you know, it, th that was just like one example. I mean, you know, the idea of, uh, of like the, when they were talking about surfing in Siberia and they're, they're singing this song, Siberia, and they're talking about these barren, snow filled wastes of, of Siberia, I kept picturing sand dunes and, you know, um, just these eternal, you know, waving sand dunes that go on forever. And so a lot of the visual sense of the film really came from the music. And um, I actually didn't know this at the time, but I, I found out much later that Sergio Leone uh, would, would uh, make his films that same way. He, he would have Ennio Morricone, compose the music first and then he would play the music over and over again you know to to visualize the scenes and he would even bring a, you know a boom box out to the set and then play the music while the actors were filming so that he was sure to get the timing right based on the music and we kind of did the same thing you know I didn't I played the music a lot on the set um, but not literally as we were filming but but uh, you know it, it really just became the anthem of the film and uh, after the film was done shooting, then Brian Tyler had to contend with all of that and kind of contend with my love of the Red Elvis's music. And what he did was he brought the, the heart to it, you know, um, really. I mean, it, it, the, the film works cohesively because of Brian, because he, he really brought the music from being kind of irreverent and, and quick and snappy and fun you know, he kept bringing it back down into the, the, the heart and the soul of, of the characters and, you know, created themes for Buddy and the kid and, uh, and death. And um, so it was just a really great synchronicity, uh, you know, combination of different elements that came together to make it work, I think. Yeah, because, you know, I, I own the soundtrack. And when you listen to that CD, I mean, it's seamless. You know, mm -hmm. each song kind of just goes into one another, you know, like one, like one unit. You know, there's nothing disjointed about that soundtrack at all. 
no. And I, and I think we put a lot of work into the soundtrack. At least I, I did. I, I remember um, putting it together in a certain way. So it would weave effortlessly from Brian's score into the, into, you know, different, you know, elements and, and that I know the, uh, the dialogue bits we put in there and, uh, you know, I wanted to give a sense of the film through the soundtrack and I know the soundtrack did pretty well. And, and, you know, what's funny is I just interviewed Brian maybe two weeks ago for this behind the scenes documentary of the film. And I was, you know, he's so big now that, you know, he's, he's even hard to get a hold of. I mean, he's still a friend, but you know, we, we don't get to talk nearly as often as we used to. And it was so sweet. He, he basically said, look, it was because of Six String Samurai that I got all of those later Marvel films because Marvel looked at Six String Samurai and they looked at, at uh, the work that I had done on that. And they said, well, if he can do that and he can make that cohesive and make it work, then maybe let's give him a shot doing, you know, Marvel. And, and uh, I didn't know that. He'd never told me that before. And I, I found it really fascinating, but, but I can see it because, you know, even back then you could really see Brian's ability, you know, and, and he, you know, a lot of people throw around the word genius, but I, I really do believe that Brian is a genius. I mean, he, he really is. I mean, he's just uh, plays something like 60 different instruments, I think, and, you know, and can just come up with stuff just off the top of his head so quickly. Yeah. And when, when you're a musician, you know, a, a non-vocal musician, and you can have a sound that is your own, you know, it, it's it's a special thing. Like I was watching, I think, about, yeah, I was watching Bubba Hotep. And I'm mm -hmm. like, this sounds a lot like Brian Tyler. And yes. sure enough, it was Brian Tyler. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, he definitely has, you know, on those smaller films, has that signature sound. Yeah, yeah. And he, and he, uh, I know he and I both had a really a great experience working together, but I know he was, proud of that score and i think it kind of it, again he says this in the interview in the uh, in the documentary you know that, that it, it it taught him that you don't have to think inside the box you know mm -hmm. we were we were referencing things in the music from all over the place different instruments and pulling disparate things together that shouldn't necessarily work but kind of making it gel together and he said that that is something that he used in but bahotep and it's something that he used in every film he's done since you know, he always kind of challenges himself to think outside of the box of like what it should be. Now, aside from Jeffrey Falcon, you have uh, well, there's there's Justin. Justin, got, yeah, was the was the kid who was fantastic at such a young age. Yeah, Justin. Justin, uh, we we interviewed probably. 20 30 little kids you know that uh at uh at Loyola Marymount at the time when I started the film and again um I was only kind of guaranteed to do a small portion of the film not to make the entire film right. and uh so we didn't really know how long it was going to go or whatever but I did know I was shooting on 35 millimeter from the beginning and when you're shooting on 35 millimeter film it's insanely expensive to process the film and make a print and you know, do all that. So you can't do a ton of takes. It's, it was nothing like today where you just turn on a digital camera and you, you don't like what you get. You just, you know, erase it and then, you know, do another take or just keep shooting, keep shooting. And uh, we were also using um, crash cam footage that was expired footage from Fuji, which gave the film a really interesting look because the Fuji film really captures the blues and the sharpnesses and, and, the, and the contrast of, of the film is just really so great. But um, 
I interviewed a bunch of kids and I just right away would go, okay, this isn't going to work because they're kids. I mean, they're, it's very hard to get a performance out of a, out of a young you know, child. That's not the, the, to do it quickly and to find someone that takes direction and, and that learns and, and listens. And Justin, you know, what I would do is I, I set up an exercise in the, in the uh, theater at Loyola Marymount where I would have the, 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 the kid would come in and uh, we would, we would just kind of talk and chat for, you know, five, 10 minutes and then I would have them play a game where they would um, pretend that somebody is chasing them in the theater and that they're hiding amongst the seats and they would go around and they would just kind of duck and they every now and then peek up and see if someone's following them. And, and, and I would just watch them go through this little exercise of, of, of doing this. And, and, you know, some of the kids would just laugh and it wouldn't work at all. And, and, and with Justin, he was really able to do it. And very convincingly, and with and he was able to respond to direction. I would give them a couple simple directions. Okay, why don't you try popping up from this chair and you know show me your scared face, like you know, let's see that, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, like what you see the big bad wolf. He's coming up over this chair, you know, and and Justin did it so well that I felt confident right away that that he would be able to do it. And um, so we cast him, and and his parents were very supportive, and um, he was just a really good kid. And it's really unfortunate, both in the case of Jeff and Justin that we have not been able to track them down. You know, we're, we, we did this whole big re-release. I tracked down several of the key uh, players, pretty much all of the creative players that were, were major in the film that are still alive. Um, and we could not find Jeff and we could not find Justin. You know, I understand that Justin went on um, to play college baseball, um, mm-hmm. but uh, we weren't able to track him down. And, and I mean, Vinegar Syndrome, does this for a living. I mean, they, they release these, uh, you know, sort of older films, they put them into re-release and they have a whole system in place to track people down. And they really are very good at it. Uh, they couldn't find Justin and they couldn't find Jeff and Jeff in particular, you know, I can kind of understand because I know sometime early in the two thousands, Jeff went back to, um, China right. and, you know, he speaks fluent, um, I think Mandarin and he, had lived in China for probably a decade before I met him, you know, and then he went back. Um, But uh, I know they even had, they approached people like Cynthia Rothrock and, you know, um, other people that had worked with Jeff up in Hong Kong to try to track him down and nobody could find him. So, I mean, maybe he'll turn up at some point, but um, it's too bad. He wasn't able to be involved in the um, interviews and stuff with the documentary, but, but uh, his, his contribution to the film wasn't just as an actor. I mean, he's, he did amazing fight stunt work and yeah. often would like put the costumes. He, he would, he would throw a punch as buddy and then he would turn around and put on the other actor's costume and then do the fall. You know? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so, so he would, he would literally, that, that was Jeff. And, and uh, he also was the costume designer on the film, you know, like Jeff uh, would do this amazing artwork where he would just draw sketches of characters and, um, in these really kind of elaborate costumes and stuff. And he did, he basically designed a lot of the costumes. So he was a really talented guy and it's too bad that he's not around. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, artwork, art design, like we said, the, the wizard of Oz theme is, you know, running through the entire picture, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the end with Vegas looking like yeah. the Emerald city. Yeah, even the, uh, the the witch is killed by the water at the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Total Wizard of Oz reference. And if I'm not mistaken, off screen, 
do the henchmen fly away like flying monkeys? Yes, they like, do. Do I hear that? Yes, they do. You did. Yeah, the, the idea was that they're, mm-hmm. uh, I, I kind of modeled them after black crows. You know, the idea was they were like these three crows kind of following around, you know, death. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, uh, and, and yeah, at the end, they, they flutter and float away. Float away, little butterfly. Just flutter away. <laughs> Not exactly like that. That's a fair analogy, though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I used to watch Wizard of Oz every year. Every year it would be on, on network TV, you yeah. know, Wizard of Oz. And, and uh, I would watch it every year as a kid, you know, so I really came to just love the film. And the thing about Six String Samurai was I really wanted it to be uh, from a child's perspective. I wanted it to feel like a child's fever dream, you know, and and give it this kind of all this very magical quality that didn't necessarily have to make sense, but made sense within its own reality. And and uh, that's why it was important for me to have the kid and, and why I, I just wanted it to to have this kind of very kind of a whimsical quality to it. The spinach monster and, you know, the 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 witch and you know just just all of that those kind of uh childlike qualities i guess you could say mm-hmm. yeah and i mean there there this is definitely a cult fan type of thing i know that there's been fan made uh films you know inspired by six string samurai yeah, there's a uh, there's a filmmaker named Andre in uh, Russia who I think has now done four films in Russian um, in the Six String Samurai universe. I mean, they're not sanctioned, of course. They're they're basically right. fan films, but uh, they're they're uh, yeah. I mean, he just loves the material, and so he decided to keep kind of playing in that world. And they made some really elaborate costumes, and he gets his friends and goes out into the you know rural areas of Russia, and he. And he shoots and it's great. You know, like there's, there's a, uh, the Red Elvises were just telling me in the interview we just did with them for this documentary that um, to, still to this day, they're approached by people with six string samurai tattoos and, you know, people wanting to have the DVD signed and, and uh, requesting that they play certain songs from the film and things like that. And, uh, you know, Igor told me, he said, you know, it's just part of my life. He says, six string samurai is going to be with me as long as the Red Elvises play. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that's great. So how does that make you feel knowing that something that you did has impacted people that profoundly? Oh, it's very inspiring. You know, I'm, I'm very inspired by it. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, there was always a part of me that was a little bit sad about the film um, because I felt like a lot of people didn't get to see it. Uh, you know, in a couple of places, it really took off and it played for several months in places like Austin and, uh, Seattle, a few other places, but overall, a lot of people just didn't get to see the film. And I felt like, uh, you know, I wanted to share it, but at the same time, the only way you would be able to see it is on an old VHS tape or even DVD. And it, it was very difficult for me to even include it on my own reel, frankly, of work that I was doing because, uh, you know, it, it was all in SD, you know, with standard definitions, you know, 780, you know, or 480, I should say by 780. And, um, and I uh, was super, super happy about the fact that Palm Pictures um, and Vinegar Syndrome decided to do this re-release because now people will get to see the film in 4K, you know, like much, much higher resolution, much more like it was originally intended. And the film is so visual 
that it's not a film that you can really watch in in uh, kind of a degraded form. I think, you know, especially now, it wasn't a big deal when DVD first came out because everybody was watching DVD. But now with all of these really big TVs and the computer monitors and stuff like that, you need to see it in a higher resolution, I think, to appreciate what Christian Bernier, you know, myself and Jeff and other people did, uh, you know, Christian being the, the, the cinematographer, you know, did on the film. But it's a completely different world now. I mean, it's, it's like when we made this film, uh, there was literally no other way to make a, a feature film other than shooting on film. And, and now you have this whole digital world where you can just crank out 4K images on your, you know, on your phone, literally, you know, and uh, that's really exciting. And I'm, and I'm glad that now Six Ring will be able to be seen by future generations, by people after I'm gone, will still be able to appreciate the film. And I feel like it's a timeless film. It doesn't feel like it was shot uh, you know, decades ago, it feels like it was just shot yesterday. I mean, it could have been shot any time because we we did that intentionally to to make it feel kind of uh, classic, you know, and and uh, timeless. So, so that I'm happy about. So, so I've been able to get past that because it's been hard for me to watch it for a long time because I just didn't like watching it, knowing you know, like I don't know if it was a bootleg or if Palm did it, but somebody put up a version of it on Amazon for a long time. And it was just a really bad version of the film. It just didn't look good. And so to have it be from the original negative, totally restored, you know, put back to, to kind of like where it was when it was released. And believe it or not, for about a year, they couldn't find the negative. You know, Palm Pictures was calling me looking for the negative, saying, do you have the negative? Because we can't find the negative. And I said, no, I, you know, you guys should have the negative. I mean, you made the, the prints and stuff. And I literally had to go back and find my um, my code from Loyola Marymount uh, that I submitted the film under because it was actually made under the name Blade, not Six String Samurai. The title came oh, later. Yeah. And um, we got a letter from Marvel saying, hey, we have this little vampire thing and you can't can't use Blade. You got to use something else. So <laughs> we changed the title. But but um, they went back into where they keep Loyola Marymount films in the vault at the, at the place where the, where the film was originally housed when I originally made it and they found it, they found the negative. I, the best email I ever got was when, you know, they sent me an email saying, is this the negative? And they sent me a list of all the stuff they had. And I knew right away that was the AB rolls of the negative. So that was awesome. Wow. Glad they were able to do that. <laughs> wow. That is definitely cool. Yeah. yeah. Cause I had, I had two DVDs. I had a, I think it was a Korean import or something. And then oh, I had, had one that Palm had released that had, I think it had a trailer. It had the trailer and it had the video for Boogie on the Beach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, if you ever got a chance to see it, the best version of the film, I think, is the Japanese version. You know, like the, the, the Japanese do such amazing work with um, audio you know, and, and with uh, uh, the voiceovers, you know, like the, uh, you know, doing the uh, ADR yeah. and, uh, you know, the translations and seeing it in Japanese, you know, my, uh, my editor, uh, who unfortunately passed away and he wasn't able to be a part of this, but uh, James Frieza, who played the bartender in the film, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he uh, tracked down the Japanese version and he gave me a VHS copy, which I still have somewhere. And they make it sound so badass. 
you you have uh, um, death just has this like great Japanese deep voice and 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 they made Buddy sound like you know Toshiro Mifune or something just oh geez, you want to do your you know it's just like you know it just sounds so fantastic in Japanese I don't understand a lick of it but it it really is cool to see it in Japanese <laughs> yeah that would be my son Killian would get a kick out of that he started yeah. getting into anime uh, yeah this yeah. past year and you know. I'm, you know, old and tired, so it's like, okay, sometimes I don't want to read, show me the dub, and he, like, looks at me and, like, condescends to me, you know, like, no, dad, you gotta watch it in Japanese, you know, so, <laughs> well, now it's like, now kick at it. <laughs> if I was going to make Six String Samurai today, I would do it in more of a, a manga style, I would do it in, in, uh, you know, a more animated style. And, and I, and I would not go to death Valley. I'm, I'm actually like, like what I'm doing now is I am um, converting my whole sort of workspace, in my studio for, for a number of years, I did documentaries um, and I've got a couple of documentaries on iTunes that did really well. Uh, one of them was number one, several weeks on iTunes and one made it to like, I think number three, uh, the more recent one is called the phenomenon, um, which I produced and I co-wrote and that's on the UFO subject. Uh, it's kind of a definitive history of the UFO subject um, directed by James Fox, who's a very well-known kind of investigator of, of, of the UFO subject. And, and then prior to that, I did a documentary called Third Eye Spies, right. uh, which is about the remote viewing um, phenomenon, uh, which is uh, basically the government spent about, um, what, 20 years from 1970s to the 90s using psychics to spy on Russia as Russia had their psychics spying on the U.S., and they actually got really, really good results. And I, and I say psychic just to kind of give you the loose terminology of it, but it's actually more complex than that. They were actually using what's called remote viewing, uh, where you can basically ask just about anybody to close their eyes and imagine what's going on in a distant place. And, and they can do a fair interpretation of it with no other knowledge of the place or the people. So it's pretty amazing. But anyway, I did that for a while. And, and that um, is, uh, that's still available on Amazon Prime? Yes. Yeah. It's on Amazon prime. It's also now on, on YouTube. The distributor had may have struck a deal with YouTube. It's on, it's pretty much anywhere online. You can get it on, uh, you know, Roku, Amazon, iTunes, um, Vimeo, uh, and pretty much anywhere. Um, but, um, you know, when COVID came along, it really sort of, um, made me kind of reevaluate doing documentaries. I had wanted to do, narrative stuff again for a long time but it's an expensive proposition to do narrative films i mean it's you know documentaries now with the technology can be done pretty inexpensively um but narrative films you still need a crew you still need locations you still need you know permits and all that kind of thing and i discovered virtual filmmaking you know i discovered uh you know what's called virtual production which uh uses motion capture and green screen and um you know, consumer level, even trackers that you can put on top of cameras and on actors and things like that. And uh, it's fantastic technology that uh, when you combine it with um, software like Unreal Engine or Blender, um, you know, Unreal Engine being a video game rendering software right. allows you to work photorealistically in real time now. Wow. So, so you literally can create a whole world in your computer, you know, with a decent PC and, and then populate it either with animated actors or with real actors and then track them in real time and make it look like you're actually in the real location. 
it's fantastic technology. So it, to juxtapose that against six string samurai is so interesting because, you know, we literally had to go out to death Valley, death Valley and shoot on film and, you know, take a lot of time and effort to do that. Now you could literally whip that world up in your computer and populate your actors with it and do it a lot more inexpensively. So it's kind of opening up the type of storytelling, the type of visual storytelling that I used to do. Uh, but I've been kind of just out of the loop for a number of years. You know, I, I uh, started a, uh, a production company. I, for a while, I ran a nonprofit TV station. You know, I, I have taught, I've done like all kinds of different things. Um, you know, really just got kind of um, frustrated with the development process in Hollywood because it takes so long uh, to, to get an action oriented or a visually oriented film made. I mean, you come really close now and then, but you don't, you're not guaranteed of, of doing it even after a long process of development. So now the new technology kind of allows me to write my own ticket and just do the kind of projects I want to do. And if somebody else wants to come along and get involved, great. If they don't, we can do it all in house now, you know, so it's, it is such game changing technology. I can't even tell you. Wow. Okay. Once again, can you give us the information about the new uh, vinegar syndrome disc coming out? Uh, yeah, um, I, I don't have a link. Maybe you can post a link at the bottom of the, of the uh, podcast, but it'll be out in May. I think they're taking pre-orders now. Um, and it's, uh, you know, just look up vinegar syndrome um, and six string samurai. I'm sure it'll come up. And uh, um, it's a three disc set uh, with a pretty substantial booklet. Um, involved. Um, Lana Creel, the producer of the film, found some fantastic still imagery that was taken around the set that I had never seen before because uh. I was so busy making the film. I didn't have time to take stills. And back then, again, there was no cell phone cameras. Everybody had to use a film camera if you wanted to take film, uh, pictures. But there are some fantastic stills uh, from the making of the film and uh, you know production stills that, that she just literally pulled out of a closet um that i think someone had given her and uh um so you're going to see some of that and as i did a commentary with christian bernier the cinematographer um, oh there is coming and uh, i'm sorry i said there is yes there are commentaries one from me and one from christian and i and um we also interviewed most of the major players i mean we talked to michael burns who was the original executive director who is now CFO of uh, Lionsgate Entertainment. You know, we talked to Brian Tyler. We talked to the Red Elvises. Uh, we talked with um, our Panavision rep, Tracy Morris, who who snuck us a free camera for like months on end so that the film could get made. Uh, you know, so so we we went back and interviewed several different people, and um, it's going to be a fun little kind of look back at how we made the film. And I think they are they also included my short film on the disc. A Garden for Rio, which is a very different film, um, but, uh, you know, was the film that kind of got Six String Samurai started in terms of people getting interested in my work as a director. Ah, fantastic. Fantastic. So, guys, you heard it. Pre-order this movie. It's a must-see. I mean, that's all I really have to say. <laughs> Michelle, do you have anything to add? No. No. So, everyone... Thank you for joining us. Lance, thank you for joining us. Hey, no problem. And you know, thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast. And, and uh, um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. People can go check me out at, at Lance Mangia um, on YouTube. Um, 
uh, and uh, or or also called Waking Universe TV if you search that. But uh, there's a lot of like older videos on there. But pretty soon I'll be putting up um, several new tech videos, uh, kind of a tour of my new virtual production studio, and uh, um, you know several other things. I'm starting to kind of gear up with the channel again, so people can check that out too. Oh, great! Oh, and while I'm here, I want to thank you for the uh, information that you've sent me through. Facebook and whatnot about when the whole COVID thing was starting. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. You know, natural things that we can do to help ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, if you have another second, um, a good friend of mine is a, um, an MD that has worked with uh, NIH and some places like that on um, nutritional therapies for um, things like coronavirus. And uh, we worked on swine flu and on the AIDS epidemic in Africa and what they found was that uh, a lot of the um, heaviest hit places when it comes to coronavirus are places where the soil is deficient in selenium, you know, mm-hmm. and when people's diet is deficient in selenium, because selenium is a very powerful antioxidant and uh, areas of Africa, for instance, that have really high selenium content in the soil had very low um, instances of people infected with AIDS, you know, um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just in his data, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you combine that with like stuff like NAC, which is an antioxidant and zinc, uh, which allows the nutrients to get into the cells. And um, of course, vitamin D, which we really need for, for nutrient transport. And, uh, and uh, um, what am I missing? Um, NAC, selenium, zinc, and um, vitamin C. You know, those, those things are, are, are just really important to keep your immune system strong. So you know, it's tough times we're in, you know, it's yeah. like a, if, if you wind up getting sick, you want your body to have the tools to fight it off. Yeah. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah. So everyone, once again, thank you for listening to Hot Podcast. Tell your friends about us. And you know what we say, be decent to each other. Love y'all.